So I have the privilege to introduce our guest speaker that is here this morning. Oh, get a little feedback, sorry. Uh, I've known Craig since, well, I started coming to Coast in 98, and so I've known Craig since then. At that time, Craig was not anybody on my radar. He was like a junior hire that was like, a, who's that annoying kid? But as he grew up, actually, he and I became friends, and we'd do stuff together, and uh, he was, he is the son of Pastor Arch Rutherford, who was the senior pastor here for many years, and so it is a real privilege to be able to introduce Craig this morning, and his wife Erica is here as well, and uh, Craig, we're really looking forward to having you come this morning and sharing from God's Word, and we appreciate you being here this morning. So, Craig Rutherford. Thank you, John. Yeah, so Tom told me to introduce myself because there are some of you who are new faces. But um, I am Craig Rutherford. My dad was the pastor here from, I think we came in 1985. So I was two and a half or three years old. And I left then for college at 18, and I've never spent more than maybe a month or two back here since then. So it's been almost 20 years, but it is good to be home. This is uh, when Tom called me and asked me to come preach, I was really, really excited because I need all the, the practice I can get. So to come back to some. Some smiling and supportive faces was a, a great thing, so I am thrilled to be here. When I asked Tom if there was anything in particular he wanted me to preach on, he said no. He said, just, just bring your best stuff. <laughs> so he said, you know, if there's a sermon you've done that you really like, you know, bring that back. And so it's been a couple years since I've given this sermon, but I think of any that I've ever done, this sermon is more me. It's... It, it's who I am. It's a big part of my life. Um, you talk to people about what their favorite passage of Scripture is. You know, everyone can have varying Scriptures that, that mean something to them in a certain way. My mom's favorite passage of Scripture was Romans 8. In fact, she had the whole chapter memorized. Um, for me, I would say my favorite is Romans 7 and 8. Because the two of them together describe so much of my life and the things I've put myself through and the victory I have now daily tried to achieve. Um, so today I'll be preaching on Romans 8, 12 to 17. Before we begin, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with me today as I bring your word. Help my words to be clear and help them to be understood. Thank you for giving us 
your words to us so that we can know how to live a life pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why does this mean so much to me? Again, I've said I've experienced a lot of things that Romans 7 and 8 have to talk about. But in this passage, Paul says that we are adopted as children of God. You know, when my parents were in their mid-30s, they realized that they weren't able to have children. And they applied through adoption agency in Montana where they were living, and they were able to adopt my sister. And at the time they adopted my sister, I think my dad was... 34 and my mom was 38 and they figured that was it they were lucky to get my sister and then two years later out of the blue they get a phone call saying would you like a little boy and that was me in Romans 8 15 he tells us that we are adopted as believers we are the adopted children of God and I know what a blessing adopting adoption can be And being an adopted son of God goes so much farther than my earthly adoption. But I believe in this section of Romans 8, Paul is telling us that as the adopted children of God, we are no longer required to be debtors to sin. Adoption is my focus here, and you know, adoption may mean very little to you. I think the statistic says that there's only about 2% of Americans are adopted. So in a room this size, I may be the only person here that's been adopted. You may not have been adopted. You may have never adopted anyone. You may not know someone who's adopted. You may be able to watch a Sarah McLaughlin commercial on pet adoption and not even be moved. It may mean nothing to you. But I think that what Paul is showing us here should mean something to all of us. Before I look at the passage, I want to go back and look at the context. Like I said, Romans 7 and 8 means so much to me. In Romans 7, Paul repeatedly says that he does what he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do. And it culminates in Romans 7, 24, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? As a believer in Jesus Christ, Paul was experiencing experiencing spiritual defeat. He was experiencing the pain that sin causes. But then he begins chapter 8 with, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are under Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what does it mean that there is no condemnation? I've heard this verse used over and over in my life saying that, well, once you're saved, you're not going to be judged. There's no judgment on you once you're saved. But what is Paul saying here? How does that tie Romans 7 into Romans 8? The word for condemnation there is a Greek word called katakrima that's only used twice in the New Testament. Paul uses it back in Romans 5 and he uses it here. And the word... It's best used not as a condemnation, but as like a prison sentence, a penal servitude. You're no longer having to serve the sentence to sin that you were before you were a believer. When we are saved, we are facing, before we are saved, we're facing not only eternal separation from God, but in this life now, we are literally prisoners to sin. We are under that condemnation, that prison sentence. 
And as believers, we are no longer required to serve that sentence. And that, according to Paul, is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives if we walk according to him. And in the first 11 verses of Romans 8, Paul repeats that thought several times. But now we get to our passage. We're going to look at what it means to be an adopted child of God. In Romans 8.12, it says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So what does he mean here by under obligation? The Greek word here for obligation is, is literally translated as debtor, one who owes money or services. The way I see it is he's sort of taking that same metaphor and and reusing it. You know, when Paul makes his logical arguments, he often uses one way of telling it, and then he'll tell you it again in another way. And so earlier it's a prison sentence, and now here we're looking at debt. In Romans 8.1 he says we're no longer prisoners to sin, Here in 8.12, he says we're no longer debtors to sin. If we were prisoners, it means we once were. If we were debtors, it means we once were. So let's talk about debt a little bit. I was looking up debt, and I, I found this quote. It says that debt is a way of life for Americans. With overall U.S. household debt increasing by 11% in the past decade, Today, the average household with credit card debt has balances totaling $16,748. A lot of people pay, or most people that have credit card debt pay $1,300 a year in interest on their credit cards alone. You know, I know when I first got out of college and I was making real money for the first time in my life, I felt like I could buy anything. And so I bought new furniture for my apartment and I bought a computer And I had a grandfather who would say, everything you buy, it should be cash on the barrelhead. But I didn't do that. I borrowed money for all of it. And then I started realizing that that paycheck I was getting every two weeks didn't quite cover everything that I had borrowed and buy myself food and gas for my car and the other obligations that I had. So pretty soon, I started getting phone calls saying, when's this payment coming in? When's this happening? And I mean, the stress I put myself under, it was just like a, a weight that I had to carry with me everywhere. But what's the worst that can happen in our society today? If you carry a whole lot of debt and you can't pay it off, you go to bankruptcy. And it may be shameful. It may put you behind where you want to be in life. But it really isn't that bad. But in the original audience that Paul was writing to, what did debt mean to them? In the Roman society at that time, if you couldn't pay your debt, you would get sold into slavery. Or they would sell your children as slaves to pay off your debt. We see this in in Matthew 18 when Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant that a king took the debt of one of his people and he forgave it and then that person turned around to someone who owed him far less and threw him in jail because he couldn't pay his debt it's a lesson on on how we should be forgiving but you see there that this was real this happened you could be thrown into jail or sold as a slave if you couldn't pay your debt 
So when they, the original audience, would have heard this or read this, when they envisioned debt, it's something very different than we think of. This was a life sentence to have debt. It wasn't an annoyance. It wasn't a burden. It was a life sentence to them. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is four here. We're continuing on from, you know, he's continuing his thought. But under an obligation and debtors, life and death here is not eternal salvation. Um, again, he, in verse 12, he used the word brethren. He's speaking to believers here. I like that Zane Hodges had to say about this. He says that the concept of life and death in Romans 8 are best translated as a mindset of life and death. He says that since the mindset of the flesh is inescapably preoccupied with the sphere of sin and death, that it cannot be rescued from this preoccupation and from all the evil inclinations that manifest themselves in that sphere. Thus, Paul's experience of spiritual defeat and experience of death itself could not be changed as long as his mindset remained unchanged. You know, early in this chapter in verse 5, Paul says that for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. doesn't mean you're going to die. You're going to be experiencing spiritual death and defeat as a believer by keeping your mind on the things of the flesh. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Your experience is going to be so much different. And remember, all of this is coming out of chapter 7. There was Zane reference that Paul was telling us how he experienced this spiritual defeat. So what are you focused on and how will that impact your life? If I am focused on my sin, it will lead to more sin and more experiencing of that death. You know, I liken this to, I don't know if anyone here has ever struggled with depression or despair, but at times in my life I have, and I felt like it was a, it was a never-ending cycle. You may wake up in the morning and have a few brief moments of relief, and then you, the despair sets in. And because that's what you're thinking about, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It just, things go wrong. And life is hard, and it's just on your mind all the time. But when you see the truth of life, that you have good things, that there are great things, you can break that cycle. And spiritually, that's what Paul is saying here. We can't be focused on the things of the flesh, our own desires, the things we want in this flesh. We need to be focused on the things that God wants. In Colossians 3.1, it says that if you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. Moving on to Romans 8.14, it says that for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So this is Paul's introduction here to us being children of God. And in the context of this section, it illustrates how far we are from being debtors. In first century Roman Empire, it was estimated there was about 45 million people. 
you may say that there was about 10% of it that could be considered middle class. But really that were just free people that, that weren't slaves. And they weren't all that well off. And they lived day to day. They lived with that constant fear of if something goes wrong, if I get hurt and can't work, I'm going to die. I won't be able to provide for myself. They lived day to day. And that was sort of the upper class. At the very tippy top, you had the emperor and 300 families that were in the Senate. The people that didn't have to worry about anything. That's 301 people out of 45 million. So if you imagine that Paul is saying that being a debtor to sin was like debt in their society, if you were a child of Caesar, debt would be no concern. You're a child of God. Sin should be no concern. So while the spiritual metaphor may not mean as much to you and me who we are the child of, it doesn't matter as much in our society. Classes can be broken. You can move up in the world. You couldn't move up in their world. You were where you were and you were constantly in fear of falling behind. But have you ever felt that way about sin in your life? That it has a hold of you like, and it won't let go? Like debt would have been to them? Like it was something inescapable? That once you had it in your life, you couldn't get rid of it? But Paul's telling us we can because of who our Father is. How much greater is God than Caesar? And they now carried his name, and so do we. How can any sin hold a claim to us now? Then how can this be? How are we made the children of God? In verse 15 he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This highlights the work of the Spirit again and contrasting it with the fear of being a debtor. We did have fear. We were debtors, but now we've been adopted. And it points to the Spirit as the instrument of our adoption. And what does this adoption mean? Is it, is it legal? Is it family? Now, I had a professor in seminary that we were looking at another passage that had adoption in it. We were talking about um, what adoption meant back then and how you should understand it. He says, you know, adoption to them wouldn't have been understand what we think of it at all now. Um, most often it was an aristocrat who didn't have anyone to pass his name on to, and so he would adopt maybe a slave or someone else to take his name. So it was very legal. It wasn't love. The adoption I experienced is love. Adoption then, when they read this, they might not have thought love. But then Paul says that we can cry out to God saying, Abba, Father. You know, where else do we hear Abba, Father in the New Testament? Mark 14, 36, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. The Aramaic Abba was the term that Jesus himself used in addressing his Father. And its preservation in the Greek Gospel of Mark and in the Greek-speaking Pauline churches attests to the fact that it was remembered and treasured. 
that this is what Jesus called his father. And Paul here says that we can cry out to God as Abba, Father. By using the same expression that Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul is pointing out the closeness of the relationship that we now have with God. I just love the use of adoption here because we weren't born into God's family. You know, David says in Psalm 51.5 that, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We were sinful at birth. We have always been enemies with God. And yet, through faith in Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Sin cannot claim you as a child of God. Verse 16, he continues and says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. And being a child of God would have been a new concept to the Gentile believers. I think that the Jewish believers in the church, the Church of Rome had both Gentiles and Jews. For the Jewish believers, they were probably more used to the idea of being a child of God. That the, Israel was the children of God. Um, but for the Gentiles, this would have been something new. And the Holy Spirit being in their lives was the witness that this was true. They were believers. Being a child of God was now for both Jews and Gentiles, and it was shown by the Spirit. And then in verse 17, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You notice the distinction there? He tells them all that they are heirs of God. But he tells them all that they are heirs with Christ if. What's the difference? Why is there an if to be a joint heir with Christ, but no if to be an heir of God? He's told us we're children. As a child, you are an heir of your father. But if to be a joint heir with Christ, what is his inheritance? If we have an inheritance of eternal life that has been given to us when we believe, but if we suffer with Christ, we'd be a joint heir. What is Christ's inheritance? Christ's inheritance is that he is going to reign. And we have an opportunity to share in this. You know, one of my dad's favorite passages is 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, where it says, this is a faithful saying. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. But if we endure, we will also reign with him. I think that's what Paul is pointing to here. That if we suffer with him, that we have a chance to be a joint heir with Christ in his reigning. If we endure, we will reign. You know, Paul suffered a lot. Paul gives a list at one point where he says, you know, the number of times he was beaten, shipwrecked, in danger in the woods and on the road and the rivers. And, you know, Paul went through a lot as a missionary for Christ. And is that what he's telling us? That if we're not experiencing that kind of suffering, that we have no chance of reigning? I don't think it is. You know, times are changing in our country. Very soon we may be persecuted for standing up for our faith. 
But we're not there yet. Most of us in this room will never experience the things that Paul did. But what does it mean to reign? One quote said that rather the suffering Paul speaks here of refers to the daily anxieties, tensions, and persecutions that are the lot of those who follow the one who was reckoned with the transgressors. We have to stay the course no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're being beaten or just spoken bad about. It doesn't matter where you're at. You need to stay the course. Take a hold of being an heir of God. Take a hold of having sin no longer being, having a claim on you. And stay the course. And no matter what happens, Paul points our eyes to the future. And what an honor and privilege we have before us. How could any suffering in this life ever compare to what awaits us if we endure? So I have three things that I want you to take away from this. One, we've repeated this a lot, but do not live like you are a debtor to sin. Don't look at your sin like it can be that burden around your neck. Like it can be the thing that undoes you. In no way am I saying that this is a given or is easy. I mean, go back to Romans 7. Paul was an amazing believer. Probably the greatest missionary to ever live. And yet in Romans 7, he tells us his struggles. We can take heart in that. And we can take heart in what Paul tells us in Romans 8, that we don't have to fight it like that. That we walk in the Spirit, that we are a child of God. You know, what does it look like when we let the flesh take over? In Galatians 5, it says that it's adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. You know, oh, wretched man that I am. And as we have seen, it is by the Spirit, that being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, it frees us from that sentence. It frees us from the debt that sin brings. So what does it look like when we're liberated from that? You may look at that list and go, you know, the big sins on that list I don't do. You know, do I struggle with selfish ambitions? I sure do. With envy? You know, he has hatred there. Do I struggle forgiving people the way God has forgiven me? I sure do. So what does it look like if I walk in the Spirit? Let's go back to Galatians 5 where Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So which list better describes us? If Paul is telling you that you can claim this, that God is allowing you as his child to walk in his spirit and live a life that looks a lot more like the fruits of the spirit than it does the flesh. And that's an amazing thing. And we have eternity to look forward to, but we have a life right now where we don't have to live like a debtor. 
In doing this, your life and your actions can become your greatest witness to those who are lost. People are going to see you and they're going to see that something is different. Our second takeaway is I want you to embrace the idea of adoption. I had another seminary professor who told us um, that when you're preaching, you may not want to stress too heavily the idea that God is a father. He said that in today's society, more people than not didn't have a good dad. The number of absentee fathers, the number of fathers that are abusive, the number of fathers that just aren't good guys is on the rise, he said. And so you may not want to stress it that heavily. For many of those who are coming from a background like that, the idea of God being a father can either have no effect or even a negative effect on them and their willingness to accept God. But embrace the idea of adoption. I mean, talk to someone who's been adopted. Or you can take my word for it. That adoption is the real deal. And if we know that we are adopted by God and that we can call him Abba Father, that he's our daddy. You know, as someone who's adopted, I find it offensive if someone is to call my biological parents, oh, those are your real parents. Those aren't my real parents. My real parents are my mom and dad who I love and who love me. I've gotten to meet my biological family, um, but they're just people to me. My family that I love is the family that adopted me and raised me, and that's who God wants to be to us. And we can stress that to people, that no matter what their background is, no matter what your dad did to you or didn't do because he left, there is a God out there who created the universe and he wants to love you like a child and love you in a way that you have never experienced before. Embrace the idea of adoption. A father who will never let us down wants to adopt us. And our third takeaway is to go after the inheritance. Again, there was no conditional statement for being an heir of God You become a child of God by faith alone in Christ alone. And you're adopted at that point, and it's a free gift of God. And as the adopted son of my father, he's my dad in both a legal and relational sense. And there is nothing that I could do to change the fact that he is my father. No matter what I did in this life, he would always claim me as his son. From the moment I was adopted, I was his son, and it will always be true. But what if I am not proving myself to be worthy? What if I'm living a life that just isn't honoring to God, honoring to who he raised me to be? Would I be worthy of an inheritance? Would he want to honor What I'm choosing to do with my life if it isn't something that he sees as honoring to God. But again, regardless of the choices I make, I am my father's son, and likewise I am the adopted son of God. 
And that will never change. I am the heir of God. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the heir of God. But am I living my way, my life in such a way that will ensure that God will want to make me a co-heir with Christ? Remember, there was an if there. If you suffer with him. You know, one of my, my favorite parables is the parable of the, the talents in Matthew 25. You have two, two servants who did what their master asked them to do and a third that didn't. And the third was, was cursed, but Matthew 25, 21, he's talking to the faithful servant. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that what we all long to hear? Well done. Well done. And as a child of God, you have the ability to hear that, to live a life right now that will be more, it will be filled with love. It will be an experience like nothing else that we can experience on earth if you're living out the life that God wants you to have. But then you're going to get to experience something completely different when you get to heaven. God is going to make us joint heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. And I don't know what your suffering might be. In a group this large, we may all have something very different that that God puts in our life that we need to endure through. But it requires you. God isn't going to force you to be faithful. As his child, he loves you and he wants that from you, but he isn't going to force you. It requires an act of the will to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And as a child of God, you can do that. So I told you that I knew what a blessing earthly adoption can be. I want to just elaborate on that a little bit. You know, I've met my... I mentioned a minute ago, I met my biological mother, and she is a wonderful lady. And I enjoy the relationship I now have with her. I never did get to meet my biological father. He uh, passed away in an accident before I ever got to meet him. Um, But from both accounts, from all accounts, there were both really good salt-of-the-earth people. But neither one of them had faith. And so I look at the blessing of my earthly adoption that I was adopted by two parents who loved God, who told me about what Jesus did for me, who ensured that as I grew that I was taught the truths of God's word. I liken that to this because I am the man I am today because I was adopted. And the person that we all are today should be affected by the fact that you have been adopted as a child of God. It's who we all are. And we should be living a life that reflects that. What a blessing I received. But again, it's nothing compared to the blessing of being in God's family. 